You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, we have a legend in the building, one of the all-time greats, Joel Moore, widely considered one of the greatest English guards of all time, double gold Commonwealth Games medalist um, and a BBL legend. Not only did he play in the BBL, but also spent a short stint abroad, did a season in Germany, which you'll hear all about. It was one of the more interesting conversations I've had recently uh, going into the history of the game, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Before we do get into the show, as always, I do have to give a quick mention for our Patreon account. We are coming directly to you, our audience, to help support us. You know, all the work that we do costs money, it costs time, and we cannot do it without your support. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hoopsfix, there you can sign up to give as much or as little as you'd like every single month to help support our work. For the price of a cup of coffee, you can help support Hoopsfix, help continue uh, growing our contributions to the British basketball media landscape. So go to patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix, and you can sign up there. Before we do get into the show, uh, one more thing is if you're listening on iTunes, please do give us a rating and review. It goes a long way in helping spread the show far and wide. Um, and if you do have any feedback that you'd like to give personally, uh, you can drop me an email, sam at hoopsfix.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. And of course, you can reach out to me on every single social media platform at Hoopsfix. Anyway, that is enough from me. Here is this week's show with me and Joel Moore. Joel, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you, Sam? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Uh, you know, a nice journey in. Didn't take me too long. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy that the Blackwall Tunnel wasn't blocked. So it's good. So we, we were just saying um, before I hit record, uh, you're saying, well, I don't understand why why you'd want me on the show 20, 20 years removed from, from the game. Um, but actually, for me, this is this is a, the, one of the most important aspects of the game is the history and the culture um, and kind of what came before to create you know the scenario that we're in now and i think without it no one has the context um i think it goes a long way in creating um a british basketball culture and i guess what you know one of the one of the places that i did want to go and i seeing as we're on the topic already um is talking about sort of being a legend of the game but maybe that not being recognized by people or people not actually knowing what you've done um you know when you look look back on your basketball career and kind of obviously now you, you know you're, you're coaching you're working with, with a lot of younger players uh you know, do you think that there is an element of them not having any clue about who you are and what you've done? You know, there's a lot of that. I get a lot of that, but then I also get a lot of people that do remember me. Um, I, I, I think that um, England basketball hasn't really celebrated what has gone on gone before. If you look at the NBA, you look at all the, the, the European leagues, they celebrate the players that um, have trailblazed, basically, but not so much in the British game. Do you find that difficult? Um, sometimes when you're talking to to a young person and trying to pass the game on to them, that is the difficult thing because they don't really have any recollection of what happened before. They don't know who you are and how much effort you put into this game to develop it. So yeah, that 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 can be difficult sometimes. Are you in touch with um, you know a lot of a lot of the other guys from your era, the kind of the stars of of that of that um, of that age, and and you know do you, do you guys have conversations about kind of you know where where you're at now, and and maybe sort of the the lack of recognition and appreciation from um, from the current generation? Um, yeah, 
I'm, I, I, yeah, we, we, I talk all the time to you know some of the players that I played with, and that always comes up frequently. Um, I just think that <clears throat> the governing body hasn't done a very good job of celebrating the past, and so the kids have no recollection of what went on beforehand, and they think basketball started maybe five, ten years ago in this country, and it was huge, I think, when I was playing. You know, what's mad is that... Um you know, one of the things I started, what I used to do before I'd interview people, especially people from before sort of the era that I was covering the sport, uh, was I'd just Google and I'd go as deep as I can into the into the results. And, you know, as you know, there's not that much stuff. It's very hard now for, you know, for me to find highlights of you, for example, whereas if I search a kid from the last couple of years, I can find a mixtape and just kind of see who they are and, and their game. Um, so one of the things I do now is I, like I do with you, is I email before and say, oh, have you got a sort of basketball CV that you can send through and for me to have a look at? And then, I, for some reason, that never clicked in when I first started doing this. That I could just ask the person beforehand and they could send me just a detailed <laughs> list rather than me calling 20 people and, and you know, trying to um, get to the bottom of uh, sort of your story. And, and when you when you sent through the CV, I mean, there's a, there was a few things that stuck out. One, like the fact that you've won pretty much everywhere that you've been. And yeah. you've, you know, been on very successful teams. Um but two, the fact that uh, you've won two Commonwealth Games medal, gold medals, uh, and I didn't even—I wasn't even aware that um, we had gold medalist teams. Uh, you know, that was eight. What was that ninety-four and eighty-two, or eighty-four yeah. and ninety-two? One, yeah, one of those two. Um, you know, the Commonwealth Games that people always talk about is the two thousand and six team uh, that won a bronze. Um, so yeah, like. How do you think that's managed to get lost in the in the uh, in the record books of when we talk about sort of the past and and sort of uh, national teams? I just think that again, you know, the governing body um, doesn't really celebrate what went on before. For me, you know, I even though I I came in at a time when basketball was huge, I still recognise the players before me, the Jimmy Guymans, the Mark Sayers, players of that era that a lot of people will never ever hear of, who brought me into the game. Sprogis, who used to who works at FIBA, FIBA now, that was my first recollection of basketball. I saw them when I was 12 and 13 years of age. And that's how I understand the game from watching them and developing. And I, I, to, to understand that I'm probably the only person in Britain with two Commonwealth gold medals. Um, Steve, I think he has a bronze and a gold. We was on the second one together. But yeah, you know that, I think that probably is one of my biggest achievements for me. When you uh, sort of look back on on your career, and I, and I, you know, I do want to get into the weeds of the specifics of sort of year on year, and, and of course how you first started getting into basketball and stuff. Um, but kind of now looking back on it, uh, when you look at the the highest of the high points, was that the high point, um, or are there other things that stick out? What are the sort of the the biggest highlights? There are a lot of things in my career that actually stick out. Um, for me. Um, what the one of the Commonwealth goals, the first one was was special for me um, because I was 17. I was 17 playing for my country, and we was we was in New Zealand, and um, playing against the New Zealand national team. It was it was a tough experience and a tough year for me coming from school, still doing my GCSEs, and having to play against big grown men. It was really the first time that I'd really played against top-class internationals, and it, it, it set me up for the rest of my career. And at, at that point, were you the youngest player to represent the senior national team? Yes, I was at that point. There was two of us that got our, our, in our caps at that time. It was me and I think Dave Gardner was on the team as well. But I was, I, I was the youngest. Dave's a year older than me. So 
it was a, it was truly one of my most momentous moments I think in my career. So who was coaching that squad, and who 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 were the other players that were on the team? Um, I want to say the coach was Bill Beswick. Um, on the team, I had Carl Tatum on the team. Dan Lloyd was on the team. Also, um, Dave Gardner, I think. Uh, well, Steve Asinda was on that team. I'm trying to remember everybody's name on that yeah. team. It's such a long time ago. 17, 30 odd years. Yeah. Did, did, like, in terms of your contributions, did you get off the bench? Did you, were you playing a lot? Were you contributing? Um, and what was the journey to the gold? Like, you know, how how easy or, or not easy was it? I think we're, you know, the, there's a stroke of luck in this. You know, Australia were the favourites. Um, but New Zealand beat Australia in the semis, thus leaving the path clear for us. Right. And that, Australia were the favourites. They were always the favourites at the time. And they, had the, they, they obviously had a dogfight with New Zealand and New Zealand won because it was in New Zealand. And... Um, we beat New Zealand when we, you know, it was just on the day. I I played, I did, some, it was hit and miss. Some games I'd play a lot, some games I didn't. In the final, I played, I think, the last eight minutes of the game. We were down, and I think I might have scored 11 points in the last five minutes of that game. Wow. And there was a lot of talk and hysteria. Because prior to that, we had played in a tournament, I think, in Japan, and you had Stanford University there. You had New Zealand, Japan. There's a pre-Commonwealth tournament. And there was a lot of hoopla about, am I going to go to Stanford? Because Stanford offered me to go and play at their school. But um, my coach was the assistant coach at the time and told me, no, we'll have better colleges, so stay. Yeah. But uh, back then, there was no internet. There was no internet, no access to all of these universities and such. But, you know, they their star player... Um, asked me would I want to come to play at Stanford at wow. the time. So, yeah, there's a lot of background history on that. Yeah. So in, in terms of the status of, of, of those games, you know, with the media and stuff back then, you know, clearly winning a gold medal was no small deal. Um, you know, was the final, were the games televised? Uh, you know, was there any type of reception when you came back? Like, what was the sort of the public reception of, of you guys winning gold? Nothing like that. Should have known, should have known. Nothing like that. Um, it was televised. It was televised in in New Zealand. I'm, I'm sure they will have footage of it. There is meager footage of it some places, but you, you know, I'm 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 not really that type of guy to chase those kind of things. I I played the game because I like beating people. I like <laughs> winning people. It's, it's, I've never played the game for the money or for putting my name up in lights. I just like playing. I, I, I love competition, and that's always been the way that I played the game. But yeah, there was no fanfare. No extra bonus from the England team, and I'd, you know it was one of my best trips. I remember it very well. We, we we won it, and then we we came back via Hawaii, and I think the per diem per day was something like thirty thirty pounds a day they gave us. So all our meals were paid for, and they gave us four days money to go and do what we wanted to do in Hawaii. So I loved it. I spent my time on the beach, so it was it was wonderful. So there must be there must be footage of that. This exists somewhere. Must be, but I, I again, it's not, needs to dig that somebody up. needs to dig that up. They know th where it is, but it was a it was a close game, very yeah. very close game against them. We we knew New, Ze New Zealand. I was happy that we played New Zealand because Australia they had a, a few more guns. They just were misfiring in the semi-finals. New Zealand we had played before in a in a tournament, so we we knew the the, the, the Hill brothers and stuff like that. 
we knew who we were playing against and so we played very well on that particular day it's crazy man like yeah every time i find out about about the history stuff like i'm still sh in shock and in awe of of uh of all the things that that have happened um and yeah i'd love to see them documented in a better way you know um and i guess that's part of like part of doing this podcast and sort of having the the, the added video element is that you know if you're talking about this and then i can somehow get access to that footage yeah. and then snip it in and release it as a little separate you know three four minute clip um i think it would go a long way for you know for the younger generation and for uh fans of the game now to be able to look at it and say oh yeah like wow like we've you know and then be able to tell their friends yeah we've, we've actually we've won two gold medals before at the commonwealth games yeah. and um because yeah like i said i mean i don't even i didn't have a clue and it's obviously in my interest and i go out seeking that information i you know i when i when i talk to the kids and i even some of the coaches um that are a little bit younger than me and i say that you know at one point we were six in europe and this is not a lot of people realize that we we were ranked sixth in Europe, you know, in the pre-Olympic tournament. I think it's 1988. We, we finished six out of eight teams in Europe, which is considering the biggest guy on our team was six foot eight. We did fantastically well. Yeah, you know, not not a lot of people know this. Yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah. no, no. I mean, it's, yeah, <coughs> and like you said, it's until until it is documented and, and spoken about in interviews like this and sort of media appearances, it will continue to to remain buried. Um, so yeah anyway the the start the beginning let's let's rewind let's rewind it right back um so yeah like you know what was it that actually got you into basketball how did you first end up with a ball in your hands you, you know i i think back in the day when i was a little tiny boy i think i must have been five and um there used to be a, a program on tv the harlem globetrotters harlem globetrotters cartoon and just I loved it. I loved every minute thing, everything about the Harlem Globetrotters. I was f five years old. You know, my mum wouldn't let me watch it on TV, so I'd get upset and go and cry in my room. And from then, I had the bug. So I, I probably had my first basketball. I think at the age of six or seven. Wow! So you started young compared to most people. Very young, and I used to dribble my ball to school and play on my own. I didn't mind playing basketball on my own. Most people back then, nobody was playing basketball. And then um, <coughs> I was fortunate enough that I went to the same school as my sisters who were a few years older than me, and they played basketball at that school. This was South East London, right? Yeah, Dep Dep I went to Deptford Green School. And again, you know, they they played basketball and they were Lewisham champions, which was a big thing back then. The year above me were you Lewisham champions. And, you know, fortunate for, for me, my, my, my two PE teachers, one was um, British University's captain, Stuart Ashby, and the other one, Steve Purnell, he was playing for Embassy All-Stars and Hemel. He played for them um, as a professional player as, as well as a teacher. So <clears throat> immediately I gravitated to them and I, I learned a hell of a lot. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of those kids that when I like something, I absorb myself totally into it. And um whether I was the best at it or wasn't, I practiced every day. Most kids don't practice every day. I'd find a way to practice every day. And um, I think that's how I developed that much more. I loved it. I loved it. Most kids don't love defense. I love defense. I love chasing you around the floor. I love, I love making your life hell. I believe that if I'm having a bad shooting day, you should have a bad shooting day, more than me making buckets. So for me, I, you know, every element of basketball, I, I enjoyed at the junior level. And I, you know... I would do my best, even when I was playing pro at 16, 17, I wouldn't miss a school game. So I would make sure I'd go to my, my team practice, the pro practice, and I'd, I'd take a taxi back 
to my school to make sure that I didn't miss the game. So, and um, I loved everything about basketball. So, uh, in terms of like the practice, like how how were you practicing? You know, I'm assuming there were probably similar barriers then to you know some people face now in terms of access to facilities and stuff. Like, what 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 were you doing to to work on your game? Um, you know, whether it's when it, when you were outside of team practice and how much team practice were you having? I think my school is very similar to a lot of basketball academies now. Um, we played football. Um, we were all right at football, but at lunchtime there's 70, 80 kids in the, in the sports hall every lunchtime. So you'd have to find a basket and find a, if you're lucky to get a ball and play play with your, your mates on the side because there was 10 baskets in my gym and they all were used. Um, we practiced because I think back then they, there was a lot more year seven, year eight, year nine, each team would have to have a day of practice. We never did key stage three and key stage four that you have now. So we'd practice and then I'd sit around and watch the seniors practice or try to jump in their practice or I'd help the teacher with the lower years so I can practice in their one too. Even if there was a game on, I'd do the table so I'm, I'm involved in it constantly. Then during the holidays, I'd, 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 I'd do anything the caretakers wanted. Any part, any room they wanted to clean, I'm there. I'm there. I clean any room so I can get an extra hour on the court. And my school was such that we had outdoor courts as well. And so for me, I even in the holidays, if I couldn't get inside because there was something going on, and it was a summer's day, I'm 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 out there. I'm training. I'm out there every day with my friends. It got to the stage that at weekends, I had two f really good friends that lived in the neighbourhood near me in Deptford. Um, Anthony Patrice and Ian DeRoach. And you know in the housing estates that have the Sherwood call or the name of, we'd play on that, that'd be our basket. And we'd play two on two. So I did a lot of that at the weekends to better my basketball, as it were. What was the split between playing outdoors and indoors? Because I feel like one of the big shifts in in, well, I say in recent years, but in the last sort of five, ten years or so, is that a lot of, uh, of the top younger guys don't really play outside anymore. Um, right. And for me growing up, that's all we did. We couldn't get access to a gym, so it was just, it was outside, and unless we could break into a gym somewhere, it was, yeah, it was always outdoors. Um, I would say mine was 80-20 outside, and back then, 80-20, because there wasn't that many outdoor courts back then. I think Adidas went a long way a few years later to, you know, putting baskets in every borough, every town and stuff. So it was 80-20 split and I would find a gym. And, you know, I think as early as 13, I was playing on the London team. So I would basically go... Which was what, a regional team? A regional team. We they competed in... Against Manchester, Birmingham, okay. places like that. Inter-regional tournament. Inter-regional uh, tournament. Okay. And um, I would um, go to Peckham two, three times a week. Mr. Tucker, who was a teacher at Peckham Boys School at the time, I... Um, we would go there two, three times a week and I'd meet up with players from around London. And, um, you know, you, you, you see the players in your local area, but then you see players outside of you and it, it would make you want to play harder. You know, I remember as a kid called Dervis, um, he went to Ernest Bevan and I thought Dervis was the best player in the world as far as I'm concerned because he could dunk at 13. He was 13, 14, he was the same age as me. And he was about 5'10", and he could dunk, and he would get first round the back pass behind his back, and I was like, 
that's I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have to up my game. I'm just gonna have to <laughs> just gonna have to up my game. So, yeah, <clears throat> you know that helped me to develop playing against other people in London at the age of twelve, thirteen. So, at what point? Um did you become involved with Crystal Palace? So I'm assuming that was your first club, or am I wrong? No, that was my first club. That was your first club. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> this is for all those kids out there that always struggle sometimes, and they're thinking, if I don't make the England team, I'm not going to make it. I failed every year trying out. I tried out for the England team under-14s, under-15s, under-19s, and they never picked me. For whatever reason, they never picked me. You know, and um, I, I just kept training. I kept working, and then I, I think in the youth games at, I think I must have been 15, it was under 16s then, we, I was playing for Greenwich, because I lived on the border, I mean like five steps away from Lewisham Borough, where all my friends lived, and all the, or everybody else that I'd have to play against, all lived in Lewisham, so I'm living in Greenwich, and I'm playing with kids that I've never seen in my life, <laughs> but for me, it worked out really well. A guy called Phil Spires was there. He was um, the coach of the under-16s, Crystal Palace. And he said, look, you're good enough to go on the under-19s right now. But I know my coach, which is Roy Packham. He's picked his team already, so it doesn't matter how good you are. He's not going to take you, so you have to stay with me at the under-16s. So I, fair enough, I played with Crystal Palace Eagles, you know, for one year. And um, that was a good experience because... Um, Steve was also on that team. Um, Steve Button. Steve Button was on that team, and um, I'd known Steve since he was about thirteen. So I knew him through the youth games. You know, he he, he was from Brixton, so I knew Steve from there. Is he older than you? Younger than you? So He's I mean? a year younger than me. Year younger. Year younger okay. than me. Um, and um, Steve Steve um, was always in trouble, and um, so I remember he came and they told him if you don't stay on this team. You're gonna have to go somewhere where we where you won't be liking. So you know, Steve. I remember seeing Steve coming in. I think, what is he doing here? And he, he came in, and it was it, it was a, it was a good experience because we we all developed together. You know, that team was very very good. Michael Hells was on that team. Jeff Booth was on that team. Danny Daly. A lot of, a lot of kids that advanced to the um, Crystal Palace Falcons the following year were all from that team. And it, it was a cultural change too because when I went to Crystal Palace the entire under-16 Eagles team was black. Crystal Palace Falcons had one black guy. The men's team had two black guys. So it was a culture change for all of the coaches seeing all these little black kids running around playing basketball. So it was a big shift. It was a very big shift in time for them. Jimmy Rogers, God rest his soul, Jimmy was assistant coach on the men's team as well so it was an interesting time in basketball so at what point um you know you've been playing since you were six seven years old yeah. and then you know by this point you're under 16 yeah. had you clearly you, you weren't making the england teams that you were trying out for nope did you at this point recognize and feel that you were good like at what point did it become okay like this is more than just a hobby like i'm actually pretty good at this compared to my peers like it, 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 you know, um, a lot of people can't believe me when I tell them this. You know, you know, I was averaging fifty. I was averaging fifty in school, and you know, you you, you can uh, people say no, no. You can ask my school teacher; he's got all the records. He's still alive. Everybody knows. Okay, I was averaging fifty points a game from the age of fourteen. <laughs> 
okay, 14, 15, 16. And that, that's telling me that I'm good enough. And then when I'm looking at the England team, there's three or four guys on that team that I've punished on the court, but I'm not getting the recognition. I've, there's three or four guys on there that have made the team, and I'm still here in Deptford playing club basketball or playing whatever it is that I'm playing. Even to the, the under-19s, I made the squad, okay? But I was doing my A-levels and I had a geography field trip. And I told them this, that I can't come to the first week of the camp because I'm on a field trip somewhere doing, <laughs> collecting dirt or something <laughs> like that. And I said, okay, Joe, don't worry, you know, you come and see us afterwards. Um, so I called them the day I got back, I was all excited. And I said, oh no, we picked the team without you. <laughs> But, and, you know, the fact, the funny thing about it is that, you know, I remember also Steve was on that team. Steve Buckner made that team. And Steve in there, the practice game against some uh, some team, and I think Buck must have had 27. And they cut Buck too. And they said, you've got enough for years. So they cut they cut Steve and me. The two the two Crystal Palace guys, they cut. Wow. So, and that, you know what? You know why we was upset? Steve was immortally upset because he scored 27 in the game. And, you know, I think I remember he was crying about it. He was upset about it. They went to Mannheim, and they played against Charles Barkley. Mannheim was a big, famous junior yeah, tournament. Yeah. yeah, Charles Barkley. Sam went to that, and all these other people went to it. But me, we won the cup final, we won the league, but there was nobody from Crystal Palace. And that's why we was really upset about that fact. That what do, you, do you think it was political? Do you think it was racism? Like, Were there a lot of other black guys on the team? Like, What's your sort of rationale for looking back I, at it now? They always have their favourites. They have their favourites. It's hard for me to admit this, but they have their favourites. Now, you look if you look back on that team and if you can find the team, how many of them went on to play pro basketball? Not all of them went on to play pro basketball. You know, there was there was three guys. It was four guys from Guildford on that team. Pete Scantlebury made it. He went to play pro. Sam Stiller made it. Chris Marchand played for about two years, and that was it. And the best player on that team was a shooter. I cannot remember his name. He just never used to miss. We used to have, <laughs> we used to have struggles guarding him. And he played one year in the pros, and that was it. And then the rest of them on that team, they're not even, they never played pro basketball. So for me, how 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 can that be that? You know, me and Steve, basically, um, we won the won the league and the cup, but we didn't play in that Man Island tournament. I, that's one of the things I'm upset about because all the oh, oh, that Man Island tournament. Yes, the Americans won it as you, they always do, and you would have been playing against Michael Jordan. You'd have been playing against Charles Barkley, people like that, and we missed that opportunity at that time. So. Yeah, <coughs> so, yeah. killer. But for me, this is this is the funny thing about it. Two weeks after I got cut from that team, my my coach at Crystal Palace, because I'd been playing for the men's team, I'd, I've just started to practice with them, and he said, "Look, you know the the starting point guard, he um his wife is having a baby, so he's not coming, and I think the second point guard he wasn't available for some other reason, so there was having trials for the national team. This is how I got on that." Senior team. Yeah, senior team. So two weeks after the, the, the under-19 said no, I went through the trials and I made it. I made the men's team. So, you know, hindsight, I don't really mind that I didn't play because I went and got my, got my first Commonwealth gold on, off of not being picked by the under-19. So it's it, crazy. As, as my, 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 my coach in the States always says, Joel, the cream always rises to the top. So it doesn't matter if you fail, the cream will rise to the top, so don't give up. 
and you know I, that was a good thing wasn't that i mean surely for i don't know how sort of um how much people were following it but surely for people that were following it or that were aware of of, of you know you not being involved with the the under 19s I mean, what were they saying when two weeks later you you made the senior team? They're like, well, how has this guy not made the under-19 team but he's now representing the seniors at the Commonwealth Games? You know what? And one thing about me, I don't ever... I very rarely listen to what people are saying around me, whether I'm good enough or whether I'm not good enough. I just get on with it. So whatever they were saying, they were saying. <clears throat> I didn't I didn't get involved in it. I'm, I'm, I'm very focused when it comes to my basketball. Anybody that knows me knows that if I'm going to do it, I have to do it the whole way. You know, a lot of people said when I retired, I shouldn't have retired. But I said, the only way I'm going to do it is if I come back and do it full time. I can't play any other way. I, I'm, I'm, I'm one or nothing. I go all out or nothing, and that's that's the way I live my life. So, I want to just quickly before we move on talk about averaging fifty in school. Um, <laughs> if you if you if you're averaging fifty, that would mean that you had just as many games above fifty as you had under fifty. So, what was the most points that you did drop in a game? Um, I think it was 92. <laughs> nice. In the quarterfinals of the Nationals. Was this a national school still? It's national schools. I scored 92. It was against Hayes in the quarterfinals. I think <clears throat> that teacher still does supply work there at that school. He can actually verify. He'll remember it. Yeah. Uh, I think I had 92. in the. I fouled out. <laughs> yeah. With, with, with how two, long left? Two minutes to go. Two minutes. So you could have had your 100. I was going for the 100. You know why? Because I had, you know, that season, <clears throat> I think Steve had scored 96 or something like that. And I wasn't having it. So I'd got to 92 and I got fouled out on a charge. Oh, killer. <laughs> killer. Yeah, I was going for the 100. And yeah, I had a lot of games at 50 plus, 60 plus. I remember the previous year in the Nationals, we got knocked out and we lost 79, 77. And I had 60 in that and that was against um a few players that were still playing in the bbl now well we retired when i retired yeah yeah one of the things that um tony g said when i <coughs> when i when i called him up and i did mention to you this to you before we start recording was uh sort of legendary battles with sam stiller yeah. um you know i did call sam and he said that you two were kind of rivals uh <laughs> as the sort of the top two guards especially you know from london um in that time you know, are there any sort of legendary moments that you remember uh, you two battling, whether it's in schools or National League or, or wherever, um, and kind of what were the outcomes? I think in school, Sam was two years older than me. I think he was, or one year, two years, two years, because it's under-19s we were then. So Tam, Sam's two years, but I played up a year. Okay. Okay, I played up a year. And the first time I saw Sam, I thought he was a great player. I thought he was a great player because I was... I think I might have been 14 or 13. Sam would have been in sixth form, just in sixth form. And he played against my school the year above. I didn't play in that game. My school won, but I think Sam had about 44 or something like that. He was just pulling up from down near half court at some stage. And then the following year, I was in year 11. He was in sixth form. We played his school, Quentin Kanaskin. I remember that, see, yeah. We played his school. They beat us. I was in year 11, but it was an under-19 tournament. He's two years older than me. And I had 45 in that game. He had about 32. But that is the memorable battle that I have <coughs> of playing him in school games. And then we played, obviously, for under-19s. 
Um, I was 17 then, he would have been just in his last year of under 19s. And they beat us at their place. Uh, he played very well that day. He, they beat us at that at their place. And um, that was the last time that I, I can obviously remember that I was on a losing time. I think I lost one more time in the pros to him, but I was playing for Hemel. He was playing for Kingston at that time. And they beat us. We was we was eighth in the league, and they were one. But most of the time, Sam didn't guard me. <laughs> See now, I have a thing. You know, they they everybody talks about two way player. Everybody back then, you have to be a two way player. I always took Sam. I always guard the the guy that's going to work. And um, Sam didn't guard me very often. <laughs> Sam Sam in the in, in once we played in the pros. I love Sam, but. <laughs> Sam is not going to guard me full court. They put Michael Hells on me at Guildford. You remember Michael Hells? Yeah. And Michael Hells was the one that always had the, the assignment to guard me when they was at Guildford. Not Paul James. It was mostly Michael Hells because they said Michael knew me from the juniors and blah, 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 blah. And it didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> and I've known Michael since we were in school. So that's what it, probably the worst thing for them to do because I know how to get by him, you know. Most people were intimidated because Mike's a very imposing physical guy. But I like that physicality, you know. For me, I, I think that what changed my mind from being in the juniors to playing in the pros, my first men's season uh, at Crystal Palace, full season, we had a guard called Dave Schutz. And he went to Long Beach State. And he... Used to beat me up. Little five ten guard with um little skinny little seventeen year old boy recovering from a knee injury. And he told Danny Palmer, It's too quick for me. I can't guard him. It's too quick, so I have to I have to take Joel's mind off the game. And he would physically beat me up, he'd bully me, and back then you know the game was a lot more physical, so the ball would be over there and I'd get an elbow in my chest and my ribs and I'm like I've never experienced this, that, that physical abuse before. And I distinctively remember, you know, getting up on the bus, the 122 bus to go to Crystal Palace, and I'm thinking, if he touches me one more time, I'm going to kill him. And he threw my game off. He just he took me out of my game. And I, I remember he hit me with another elbow, and I jumped on him and tried to strangle him. And honestly, you'll ask them, ask Danny. I tried to strangle him. My dad had to pull me off. Joe White pulled me off of him because I had my hands around his throat. He was turning purple. And they suspended me for five weeks. But I respect him more than any other basketball player because he made me understand how physical it would be. And after that, nobody could actually get me get me into that mindset of wanting to fight somebody because... After dealing with Dave, you know, Dave Schutz, um, he prepared me for playing pro basketball. And I remember I, um, when I came back, I'd been sitting on the sideline for a little while because I had sprained my ankle. And John Johnson, have you heard of John Johnson? I have, and I think it's because... He I played at Michigan. Someone, was it... Um... Someone, someone who I contacted before this for the research mentioned John Johnson. I can't remember who it was, whether it was... It wasn't Danny Palmer or... Maybe it was... He's in Florida too. John Johnson was MVP of the German Bundesliga twice, and he's British, and he played for Crystal Palace. And so I, I, I'm out injured with a sprained ankle, and 
Dave Schutz's garden. <laughs> Dave Schutz's garden. JJ JJ's like six four, athletic, and JJ's like. I see what you had to go through, Joe, because he was just grabbing and holding me and pulling me to the floor. I said, I said, you know, I see what you were going through every day now. And, you know, so I was vilified in that respect, but I, you know, Dave Schutz is still my friend. I still talk to Dave on, on online and stuff like that. He's a very, you know, he's a nice guy and he, he prepared me, prepared me for what's coming. How much do you think um, playing, playing against seniors helped your development compared to your peers of the same age? It's everything to me because... Junior basketball is how it is now. Junior basketball is no contact, no physicality. You can run by somebody, they blow the fire, okay? So you, you, if you're quick and athletic, you're going to score a lot of points if you're very highly skilled. In the men's, <laughs> my first few weeks was a problem for me because normally when I blow by somebody, I'm gone. And I'm playing with people who are quicker than me, as quick as I am. And they know where I'm going. They're reading the game. You know, this is when I start to understand the mental side of the game. Everybody's talking about the mental side of the game at 17. I think you just have the ball and run. Just go and play. And I've got people talking about the mentality and the decision-making and where you go. And I could get to the basket, but I couldn't finish because there's six, eight guys throwing it back into the, the, into the stands or something like that. And the physical demands on my body, you know, I think at 17, I was a, a, just a little whipper. And um, everybody was posting me up. Every pro player was posting me up. I remember Paul Stimson was posting me up, and he's two inches taller than me or something like that, but he's posting me up. Christ, I, I can probably think Alton Bird was probably trying to post me up, but he was just that quick, Alton, at the time. But everybody, every guard, even on my team, they were posting me up. And so the physical side of it was a, a demand for me, and you know the injuries, the little injuries that you'd get through pulls and tears, trying to do too much, or your body kind of get over the screen. I, I, never, I never experienced that before and it took me I would say the best part of a year and a half to make that adjustment from playing juniors to playing with men's and that that's the biggest obstacle I've ever had to face in basketball you mentioned Alton Bird there obviously he's you know one of the all-time greats to have played in 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 the UK yep um you know what was it like going up against him have you got any <laughs> any stories that stick out <laughs> so I joined the Crystal Palace men's team towards the end of that first year with Crystal Palace Falcons, okay? So they brought me up. Danny Palmer said, you, you know, we want you to start working with the, the men's team. So little 17-year-old, um, you, you'd think that they'd break me in easily. You know, you think Paul Stimson and Andy and all the other older guards would say, all right, Joel, I'll take Alton. No, 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 no. You take Alton. And I, this, this is no word of a lie. This, you know, I picked him up and I'm above the three-point line, and I'm there bending my knees as you do. You're getting down low in that defensive stance, and he blew by me, and I, my feet haven't even moved, and I turned around, and he's at, he's at the basket. <laughs> <laughs> he's at the basket, and I'm thinking, all I do is turn my head around, and I'm like, he's at the basket. How's he that quick? But my left leg hasn't even moved, and he's, he's gone. He's absolutely gone, and I was in awe for the first two weeks. I think it took me two weeks to just get that star-stuck light out of my eyes that I'm playing Alton Bird. Because I'd watched him. I'd watched him for a long, long time do his 360 passes and playing play against Real Madrid and Barcelona. I'd, I'd watched him many, many times. And uh, he, he's a problem. He was a problem. And it took me two weeks to get the star-stuck out of my eyes and understand that 
I've got to guard this guy. <laughs> I've got to try to guard this guy. So he he was a good starting point for me. And um, I think after maybe a month, I still couldn't stop him, but I'd slow him down because I, you know, I'd figure some things out at that stage. And you know, he was he wasn't there for very long because um, it was the summer, just before the summer. I played a couple of games with the, the first team, and then Alton left. Um, so I played three months, three, maybe four months with Alton Bird, but I'd watched him for two years. So it was a good good starting point for me and made me understand. I, I, I've never seen anybody. To this day, when he was at his best, do the things that he could do. And I've seen a lot of guards. I've seen a lot of NBA guards. And he is one of the hardest back then at that time of my career. You know, because I, I, I think one of my first games was a guy, game. Games, games was against Russ Saunders. He was a problem, a big problem. I don't know about anybody else can tell you, but I know, I know that he was a problem because <laughs> the first season that I, full season that I played against him, I had him one day. He dropped thirty three. The next day, I've got sudden Sam Smith. <laughs> so those are the kind of guards that were in in in, in the actual BBL, and, and it was very very tough, and it was a good breeding ground for me to develop my skills. Definitely. How do you compare the league back then to now? You know, I've seen you. At, I think I'm pretty sure I saw you at Crystal Palace at one of the Royals games uh, yeah. this season. So you know, I know you've seen seen uh, sort of the um, well the league this year. You know, what do you think about the BBL today, and uh, you know, how would you compare it to to when you were playing in it? It's getting better. But it, it, it's nowhere near the level that it that it was. It, 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 you know, anybody who played at that era can actually tell you. And I know you, you hear everybody in the NBA say it was better back back then and than it is now. The difference between the basketball now and then is that when I watch the game, sometimes there's no systems. There are no systems when I watch the game. It's just pure athletic ability. And no doubt that there's a lot of athletic ability around, but the IQ and the pick and roll and pick and pop and the pick and looking for a specific shot, that's not there. That is missing. If you go to Europe and you watch a European game, the IQ is there. You can see the savvy, the decision making. That is what is missing from the British game, you know, is the IQ and the development of the offense. I know we've only got 24 seconds, but there's plenty of time to get somebody a specific shot or a specific play to get that. That's missing. Do you think ultimately that comes down to, to coaching? Um, I think it comes down to where the players have come from yeah. and how much basketball they've had um, in their life. A lot of kids, we've got a lot of British kids that have played, they've been on academies, then they've gone into a pro team environment. They've never played in a club environment. And I think that's what's missing um, in Britain more so than anything else is that the pro teams haven't got junior programs in the National League. As I said, me and Bart came through the junior National League. So we came in under 16s, then we played under 19. Pre-season, under 19, how many pre-season teams, under 19s, go overseas for their pre-season practice? We went two, three weeks to Holland, Belgium, places like that, and played against tough competition to develop us. So I think that the breeding ground is different. And I think that's why we understood offenses at 16. You know, I teach kids now, and I can give them one play, 
and it take us four months to <laughs> understand it. And it, it, it's no disrespect to the kids, but they've never seen this kind of basketball. Yeah. Whereas when I go to Europe, they got 11, 12 year olds that are running plays. The plays that I run, they're running them excellently. And they, they're waiting for the pick and pop. They're waiting for the guy to double the post play and they kick it to the wing. That All of that stuff is missing. The IQ of the game, you know, we right now, everybody's celebrating Luka Doncic. Everybody in the world is celebrating Luka Doncic, but there's loads of players in Europe that have IQ like that. They're maybe not as athletic as, as Luka, but, you know, Spinulis, players like that, Juan Carlos Navarro, there's loads of players in Europe that have IQ, in, but they don't have his physical ability, you know, and he's learned the game a lot from his dad and, and for, so forth. So until we get that IQ, because we have the physical size, we have all the physicality, but we don't have the basketball IQ as they keep telling you that. And that's what's missing, yeah. basketball IQ. When I, um, when I spoke to various people beforehand and asked them to kind of describe what you were like as a player in your game, one of the things that people did say was that you had high IQ. Um, you know, where do you think your IQ came from? Like, was that just the quality of coaching that you had at Crystal Palace? Um, was it watching, I don't know, games? Like, yeah, like what would you put that down to? I think as a player, I'm a problem solver. You know, and I... I don't. I don't see competition as a problem. I see it as a. As I have to get over that hurdle. I have to do something to make the difference. You know. I remember. There's a few. I listen to my kids nowadays, and they say, "Oh, so and so isn't playing today, so we're going to lose." Or so and so. But no, that didn't ever bother me back in the day. If we had a game, a Crystal Palace game, and Steve wasn't available, or so and so wasn't available, that means I get to shoot more. Or. I get to score. I get the ball in my hands that much more because I, I think at Crystal Palace, even though I was a point guard, they played me at two. They played me at two because I could score. So, as a junior, I didn't. I never really worried about not not um, having certain players on my team. My my school team was such that if somebody didn't foul that foul that early, I'd have to go groundwork and get fifty points in school games. So, I I like to f think of myself as a problem solver on the court and. If you take away something from me, then I'll find another way. You take that away, then I'll find another way. You know, if it means that the tenth best player has to score ten jump shots, I'm gonna give him ten jump shots. That's simple. And if you keep shooting, I'll keep giving you the ball. It doesn't matter to me. I, I do score, but you know, I've played with lots of players that when they're scoring, I don't need the ball. I'm quite happy for you to score because in my mind, when you score, I score, and that's the way I look at the game. So for me. I think mine comes from, and then when I had problems at school on the court, I had two really good teachers who were very good at explaining to me why why I do this or why I pass the ball to my teammates or why is it I don't, I don't just go and score on my own all the time. They helped me a hell of a lot. And my mindset is a lot to do with how they taught me. So you did have uh, a short stint in the States, right? Very short. Um you know, we spoke about that last summer. <clears throat> um, so can we kind of talk about how, how that came about and sort of, uh, yeah, like w where was the States in your consciousness in terms of, you know, when you're thinking about your own career path at that age, where you wanted to go? Like, was it like, I really want to get to the States and I want to play in the States? Or w were, you, were you more thinking, oh, well, actually, I could just stay here with Crystal Palace and still, you know, go on and do the things that I want to do? No, I wanted to go to the States. That was, that was the goal. That was the goal, I think, at that time. Um, was to go and play basketball in the US of A. Um, but I remember I was I was on the junior team at Crystal Palace and um, my coach said that 
I wanted you to go on the scholarship, but for whatever reason, they wanted a big guy, and which is normally the case. They want a big guy. You know, you say you're going to get a guard and you're going to send a guard to the US. Everybody wants a big guy. So th I never went then. And then all of a sudden, an American coach came over to it on a camp when I was at Crystal Palace. I was 17 still. Playing for the seniors? Yes. Yeah. And an American coach came over. We were doing a basketball camp in, I think it was somewhere down in Portsmouth. We were in, and he came and he was working on the camp. And it's, I was playing against the two Americans who were supposedly going to sign for Crystal Palace. I was 17. But they changed their mind after I punished the guard. <laughs> I'm not going to mention his name, but I was punishing the American guard that came over. And he had four years of college, and I was 17, 18. And um, they decided that they needed somebody else. And um, when he went back, I was getting letters from major Division One schools, Davidson, Missouri, um, the coach from Houston College at the time, it was Five Jammer Slammer, they called me as well. I had a lot of big Division One schools and I decided to spend another year in England. But again, I didn't know what I know now. There was no internet, so these schools that were contacting me, I don't know who they are. Yeah. There's no internet access to see what is calling me, okay? So I spent another year with Crystal Palace, and then um, Marist, Marist School, Marist University contacted me, and the big guy, the Dutch big guy, forgotten his name. Um, I think it was Sigma. Not it was was it Sigma? No, there's another one. There's a, there's a Dutch big guy that played in the NBA back then, seven foot one. We met in London. We were supposed to go to Maris School, and um, my coach said, "Don't bother go to Maris. It's a small Division One school. It's fiftieth, ranked fiftieth." Um, and he said, even though I'd already got my visa and everything done, he says, "No, go to junior college for a year." then you'll have a better idea of America and blah, 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 okay? So I didn't go to Maris. That guy went on to be a, 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 a superstar in the NBA, a seven-foot Dutch guy. I cannot remember his name. He's going to come back to me. And um, I went to a junior college, and we were ranked number two. It was, um, what was the school? It was, um, what were they called? Utah. I think it was in, yeah, it was in Utah. Okay. Uh, it was a Utah, and we had seven high school All-Americans on that team. Now, anybody that knows American basketball knows seven high school All-Americans on one team make, is the makings for a very, very, very good team. Of that team, I think three of them went on to play in the NBA. Um, and um, so I'm there, North Idaho Junior College, that's what it's called. I'm there, I went there. And the first day was a baptism for me, you know. Jerry Rimbler, wherever you are, I remember I had to guard this six four six five guy, athletic as hell. And I just threw the lob back door and he caught it and dunked it over me. I was like, what? Now you've got to remember, I'm 18 now and I've, been, I've played European Cup basketball. I played against Real Madrid, I played against Barcelona. We played in the European Cup for Crystal Palace and I got lots of minutes. And to get dunked on the first day, probably the third play of the day. And it was a it was a baptism for me, but I adjust very quickly. And 
I distinctively remember it that um, I had a good day that day, even though I got dunked on. Um, the following days, there was five guards on that team, and I could, you know, I'm sitting across from them, and they're like they're having a conversation about me, and they're like, "You take him today. I'll double him. Push him my way. I'll double him. We'll try to trap him." And then, you know, it, to me, that's a compliment yeah. that you're actually making a plan to stop me. And, uh, you know, they were good friends of mine at the time. And this is when I realized the extent of how tough it is in America. Um, every day, as I can say to people, people don't quite understand. Every day is like playing the cup final over here. Every day, practice sessions are like that. They, they, they guard you baseline to baseline. They're not giving you nothing for free. And you're working hard. I had a roommate who had, I didn't believe him until he bought the letter in. He had a letter from San Antonio Spurs. They recruited him out of high school. You know, Bobby Jack Sumler, at the time, everybody knew who he was. He was 6'5", just an amazing athlete. He was my roommate. Just awesome, awesome player. Um, we had a center called Sven Meyer. He's a big agent in Germany now, Sven Meyer. He's 6'10", 6'11". You know, he went second round and didn't even go. He didn't even go to camp. He went straight back to Germany. You know, he, and um, that was my my kind of baptism into the states. I spent um, maybe three or four months. Then it was getting cold. <laughs> it's getting very cold in Idaho. I think we're in October now, and it's it, it's it's like already minus something. <laughs> and. My boys, Joe White and Michael Hills, were in, were in um, California, <laughs> calling me up. Oh, we're out here in the sunshine. We're going to the beach. You know, they're making all of these noises. And I'm like, before I went there, I had a visit. I went to Gonzaga. I went to Gonzaga University. John Stockton was there. They were recruited me. And um, you have five visits when you're in America. They give you five school visits. And I went there and Stockton, this is just before he went in the NBA, he was waiting for his contract. So he's still working at a university in Gonzaga. And he went first round and they had another guy, I can't remember his name, 6'5", he was a very nice player. He, 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 he was going second round. So the backcourt essentially was going to the NBA. So I'm there. And I'm playing, and I'm shooting left-handed because I I developed to learn I could shoot with my left hand as well as my right. It didn't make any difference to me. And they were begging me to sign at Gonzaga, and I I, I didn't go. I didn't I, I didn't didn't sign with him at that time because you've got five visits. You know, there's no point signing off at the first visit. Um, so I went back to North Idaho, and then while I was there, I kept talking to Joe White and stuff like that, and. You know, I think America can be a very lonely place, you know, because when I did it, the only other person I knew that was doing it was Steve Bartnell. Steve was in high school. Steve was at high school, in, and then it was me. I don't know anybody, any other basketball player that was doing it in Britain. It was, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't the done thing, okay? So I'm there, and it's getting cold, and I'm bored. You know, apart from the basketball's fantastic, but there's n we're in North Idaho. There's n it's potato country. There's not a lot going on there. Sorry, 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 Idaho, but there's not a lot going at that time. So the coach said, "Why don't you come on down?" So I transferred. Now to California. Yeah, 
I, I didn't tell anybody I'm transferring. I just took in the in the night, got on a plane, <laughs> went to North Idaho. And the governing body, the NC2As, NC2As said, right, because you've transferred in the middle of it, well, it was two months into the year. We hadn't, the season hadn't even started yet. So no games have been played. Because you've transferred, you're going to have to redshirt. Okay. Meanwhile, Gonzaga are livid because they thought they that I was going to sign with them. You know, even though it was only my first visit. And I heard the coach, my coach at North Idaho said, yeah, I'll get him to sign. But, you know, I went to, to um, USIU in California. Beautiful. Scripps Ranch in the valley. So you're with Joe White and Michael Hells? Yeah, I'm with Joe White, Michael Hells. Now I'm happy. See, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. The sun is shining every day. You wake up, the sun is shining. Yeah. With The weight training is absolutely hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And you're sitting there and you're watching how they lift and it's part of their life. You know, we start lifting at maybe 18, 19, some of the kids over here. It's part of their life. It's in their DNA. They probably start 14, 15 lightweights and then they get developed. You know, I'm on, I'm on a team and the backup point guard is leg pressing maybe 700 pounds. <laughs> the backup point guard. And I'm watching him strap those knees up before he goes and does it. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, this is just no way. <laughs> There's no way that my body's going to be able to lift this. You know, I'm... I'm there, and I'm thinking, nah, nah, nah. But I think by the time I, I, I left, I was I left there, I was probably lifting 600 pounds, you know. But it's a way of life. They all lift. They all lift. And, you know, we had a guy, a, a forward that was 6'5". You know, you need the drill three on two, two on one, which most, most basketball players know. I remember he came down and did a 360, and I'm thinking, how? How did you just do that? A six five. So, um, and then I got a call while I was in um, California in the sunshine, hanging out, lifting, partying, lifting, going to school, doing my lesson. And um, I got a call from England. Uh, Danny Palmer says he's starting a new program, and he'd like me to come back. Okay. So, um, Crystal Palace offered me to come back. At this time, I had no aspirations of playing in the NBA. I love basketball, but I, I got to the States and I'm doing what I'm doing. But I had to redshirt. So, I could, li I could train, practice, but I can't go on the away trips. So, I could sit there and watch for a whole year. And I didn't know if I wanted to sit for a whole year. I didn't want to redshirt because I wasn't injured. If I was injured, it might make it might make me yeah. feel a little bit better. So I came back in the January after leaving, and I think I left England in the August. And everybody everybody thinks that you need to go to the states to be a basketball player. You don't. It just depends on your mindset. So I never actually played a game. I went to Division One school, but I never played a game. I watched a few games, but. Christmas is a long time because they go on a road trip for three weeks, the basketball team. Christmas isn't like what we have over here where we celebrate Christmas and everything shuts down. No, everything opens in the U.S. So my team was having a free because I think USIU was the most traveled team back then. They tra traveled like an NBA team. So I'd have been on campus on my own for three weeks, no basketball players. And I'm like, I'm going home. 
you know, I had enough of sitting on my own. Yeah. So I went home. Um, I started the development of Brixton Basketball Club for a little while. Uh, for from January to February, I played with Brixton and got the application accepted because back then you couldn't just apply. You'd have to have everything in place. Your organization, your team. So was this the new era program, the first yes. the first part of Brixton that was yeah. set up? Right. Okay. So I went into the schools program when I came back and did coaching in the schools, tilt my play. And how old were you at this point? 18. Okay. <laughs> I was a baby. Yeah. So I did that. And then at the end of the season, Danny Palmer said, right, got a job for you in Portsmouth. Portsmouth Basketball Club is about to start. You're the first person I'm going to sign. So, Did you play for Brixton? Yeah. You did play for Brixton that for, season? I played for Brixton. I came back in the January and I played all the way up and got them promoted. We played Kingston Basketball Club in a friendly practice match and we lost by 10. I had, we had... Um, this was when Kingston were the powerhouse? Bontrager, yeah. Danny Davis, Larry Dassey, Martin Clark, Doug Lloyd, and we lost by 10. We lost by 10 and we beat Telford, who was in the league, Brixton, we beat them. Played them, went up there and played them and beat them. Beat them by four. So, you know, we had a very good cohort of English players. And we had Ron Walker as an American. He used to play for Cardiff. He was like 6'5". He's the only American we had. Everybody else was British on the team. So, yeah, we got, the, we got our new era, Brixton promoted. That was the year that Michael Jordan came over in the August. Okay. But I'd, I just left just at that time and went to Portsmouth. So I went to Portsmouth and... Um, so was that Portsmouth's first year? Yes. Okay. I was the first player that they signed. I met John Deacon. I was the very first player that they signed. And then it just expanded. It went wherever it went. What, um, so Port, I know it was at one point Portsmouth were linked with the football club. Was that from the start or was it... From the start. It was from the start. John Deacon... Um, John Deacon being the owner? Yeah. Okay. John Deacon was the owner and he owned Portsmouth Football Club. And he wanted to make it as everybody did when they started back then, like uh, Barcelona, Real Madrid, because they had basketball and football. All of these top European clubs always have a basketball and a football club. It's their academy, and they build yeah. it together. So he wanted the same thing. And Manchester United was doing one too at the time. Um, so, yeah, he bought, he bought me in and everybody else that was on that program. It was an exciting team to be on. And so that, f that first year, you were runners-up to the league? Yeah, a lot happened that year. Um, that was, I'm just looking at my notes. So that, yeah. that was 85-86 season, Yeah, the first year. And then by the second year, you actually won the National League with, with Portsmouth. Yep. Um, so, yeah, well, like, what was that team like? What was the, you know, what was, was it primarily British guys? Uh, you know, what was the state of the of the league? The first, the first year or the second year? Both. Okay. The first year, I can honestly say... I've never played on a team with more talent. I mean, <laughs> when you go into Kingston, which was the powerhouse at that time, we played them in the November of that first year, and you beat them by 18 on their own court. And the, the entire starting lineup had dunks in that game. You had Trevor Anderson, you had Alan Cunningham, you had Cal Patrick Wells. Colin Irish, Larry Dassey, Dan Lloyd, myself on the team. It was a phenomenal team. It was, it, 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 um, we Pre-season, we went to, I think we went to France and Germany. We never lost a game. Never lost a game. And up until 
my car crash, we had, that team hadn't lost a game. And I think it kind of lost a bit of its identity after my car. I'm not saying I'm the only reason, but they needed a point guard and they never had a point. Once I, once I got hurt and I was out for two months, they brought in a guy that was an ex-NBA player called Jose Slaughter. Now, Jose is a two-guard, and if anybody looks at Jose, Jose Slaughter's a good player, but he's a two-guard. So you've got Jose Slaughter at point, and you've also got Colin Irish and Larry Dassey and Cal Patrick Wells So you, and Dan Law. You've got essentially five Americans on that team, and for whatever reason, it didn't gel. Just, just didn't gel, so they lost a few games while I was in hospital. I came back. What happened with the car accident? I was a passenger in a car, and the car went into some bollards, and I went through the windscreen. The, the seatbelt law had just come in like a week, and I didn't have my seatbelt. Oh, yeah, wow. so it was my fault. It was my fault at the end of the day. I was in the passenger seat, and um, I went through the screen, windscreen, and I had stitches in my right eye. And so they thought that I was never going to play again. But oh, really, yeah, they had second second looks, and you know, I remember Kareem. Sent me over a pair of his goggles. I had a pair of Kareem goggles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, Kareem heard about my car crash. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Yes. Yeah. He came over. He sent me a, a box. How did he find out? How, how did I, that happen? That I, is really random. I don't know, but I had a pair of Kareem his goggles. I had a pair of his goggles, and they, you know, I liked them, but I couldn't play with them because I'm not used to wearing glasses or anything like that, and they steamed up. Sometimes they would steam up. They had little vents in them too, but it just kind of messed up my my uh, my the way that I shot and I just couldn't so I used to fling them off, throw them off in the middle of the game, the game and I eventually learned to play without them but yeah Kareem sent me a pair of them wow. so the um, the first, that was the first year and then the second year um, I would say that the team understood its roles a lot better we brought in Carl Tatum God rest his soul Larry Dassey died in the preseason. Uh, it was a tough time for the team so Larry Dassey died and um, Cal Patrick Wells went somewhere else to play, the big 6'10 guy. So we had Alan, myself, um, Colin Iris, um, Carl Tatum, Danny Williams. Um, Dan Lloyd became the head coach. And I think the team was very, very functional. I don't think it was as, as, as talented as the previous team, but we were better at playing together. Lawrence Held was the other American. He, he, you think of it this way. At that time, we had two Americans, and they're, they're coming off the bench. The two Americans were coming off the bench, and we started all the, the pseudo-English guys. So Carl Tatum went to Jacksonville, but he, he, he was classed as English, so he played. Um, and you had Colin Iris and Alan and myself. So it was a tough team, you know, very functional team. And we competed. I would say we competed. I don't think we was the best team in that league that year, but we somehow grounded wins out, and I think that's how we won the league because it came down to the last game or something like that and we were very good at grinding wins out that team when you talk about setting up a, a new franchise obviously linked with a football club down there you know what sort of money was being put into into a team like that um you know what sort of salaries were being floated around like were you guys living well like you know you were what 19 years old 18 19 years old okay um i had my own cottage I had a cottage. Cottage. <laughs> I had a little cottage. I had a cottage all to myself, two bedroom cottage. Nice. To myself. They were paying me, I would say, about twenty thousand pounds now, back then. Um win bonus, fifty pound win bonus every game that we won. Um 
and gave us expenses of twenty five pounds a week, I think, for me. But there were guys on my team making a lot more money. Really? Yeah, there we. I mean, I'm I'm not sure of the exact amount because people try to keep it quiet. But there were a couple of players on the team making fifty grand. A couple of people on the team were well, a lot older than me, I suppose, so they they deserved it. Yeah, but I, I was still only eighteen, nineteen, so I'm happy with what I was getting. And uh, was the club profitable? Was it actually making money, or do you think it was just the the rich owners and the football club just uh, sort of subsidising it? They were subsidising it. Yeah. They were subsidising it quite a lot at that time. They were making some money. We had some we had some sponsors, but I think they were subsidising it. And how many fans months. were you getting to games? Mountbatten wasn't very big. We'd have about a thousand, but we'd fill we'd fill it every game. Every game is standing room only. There's a thousand in there, and then you have them all on the balcony and stuff like that. Especially for a Kingston game, it was it was packed. Definitely packed. The, uh, you know, having made the sort of jump back from the States, did you have any regrets? Or like, was there any part of you that was thinking, oh, I could be in the States right now? Like, or were you, you know, 100% happy with, with your decision? Yeah, I did have regrets. Um, I regrets that, um, this, if, if anybody answers me, that's the only decision I, I regret in basketball is coming back from the States. Really? You know, and Steve Bontrag, the likes of Steve Bontrag, who I respect greatly, said that, you know, if I'd stayed in college, I would have been a second round draft pick. This is Steve Bontrager's words, you know, at the end of the day. And um, that's the only decision that I regret is coming back from the US of A at that time. You know, remember, I was playing on the England national team. I'd already had, I'd, I've already got a gold medal. So I'd played against some top British players and some top European players and, so I know what I was doing around the court, pretty much. And, um, you know, Larry Dassey was one of my favorite players to play with because he just understood what I wanted to try to do and he knows that I'm going to get him the ball all the time. Do you feel like you could have made the NBA and played in the NBA, contributed in the NBA? It would have been tough. Um, it would have been very, very tough because back then the game was so much more physical. If you're talking about playing in the NBA now with my skill set yes now but people don't remember this there was only 12 nba teams and the americans that didn't make the nba they're in europe make and then that's a lot of americans that are not playing you're talking about 100 players maybe making the nba back then now there's 30 teams yeah and i would say 30 percent of the 30 percent of the nba is european based there's a lot of European players playing in there. Maybe not getting a lot of minutes, but they're there. And if you're looking at it from that point of view, I'll say yes. If you're basing it on this generation and what's going on, yeah. Because the only people in Europe, guards that I remember that gave me difficulty, Drazen Petrovic and Nicky Gallus. Them two, you, if you kept Nicky under 24, You've had a fantastic night. You might as well go out and celebrate, trust me. And Petrovic, I played against him. You know, bearing in mind, we're talking Petrovic was getting 35 a night and 14 assists a night. Where we, did you, well, when was that when you played against him? What competition was that in? We played him in the 1988 Olympic qualifying tournament. Okay. And so the top eight. And um, we knew about Pet. Everybody knows about Pet. If you if you'd follow European basketball, you know about Pet. And, between me and Bucknell, we guarded him that night. Um, Carl Brown was on the team, but I think he was injured. He didn't play. Um, and between us, I think we kept him to... See, this is a good night, right? This is a good night to do... We kept Pet to 
12 assists and 14 points. And that's a hell of a night now, isn't it? But the night before, he had 35 and 14 against Bulgaria. The night before that, he had 29 and 17. You see, you see? So he's the only guy, and I, I'll, anybody can say whatever they want to say. He's the only guy that I have ever called for a sub on because I was tired of getting off the screens chasing that guy. And he's awesome. I have to, I, I, in much respect to you know, Drazen Petrovic because he, he, he opened the door for all the Europeans that you see in the league now. He, he basically, that door went like that once they took him. Um, so yeah, um, y I believe, yeah, looking at it from now, that's probably what would have happened. When you talk about um, all-time greats uh, from the UK, um, you know who are the names that come to come to your mind in terms of sort of British basketball legends that, if you know, if there was to be a Hall of Fame, um, that you think without a doubt need to be in there, that you know you you had, you have memories of being just you know incredible that people need to know about. Um, there's a few, there's so many. You know, if I start start from before my time, obviously. Pete Sprodges would have to be in there. Then you're looking at Jimmy Guyman. He has to be in there. Mark Sayers has to be in there. Um, Sudden Sam Smith, he definitely has to be in there because he rewrote how to score in this country and the points that he was putting up. Russ Saunders most definitely has to be in there. Alan Cunningham, ex-Globetrotter, he has to be in there. Steve Bucknell has to be in there. I'd have to put both the Scantlebury brothers in there because they both played at a high level. Andrew Bailey I'd put in there. Um... It's, the list is endless, you know. Vince Brooking would have to be in there. We could go on all night about the type of players that the that are. Michael Blunt. Now, Michael Blunt has special memories for me because the year that we won the league in Portsmouth, I distinctively remember that we played against him and his team. He was at Calderdale, and his team wasn't that tough. They wasn't, but he was that tough. Anyway, he's an ex-Laker. He used to play for Los Angeles Lakers. And we triple-teamed him. And I've never been a part of a team where we're triple-teaming another player. And he's still scoring. <laughs> and he still kept him in the game. His name was Michael Blunt, 6'9". You know, coming out now, he'd be a great addition to any, any, any team because he's a 6'9", shoot the three, put it on the floor, handle it, score. Just a 6'9", two which is unheard of back then. So we had lots of multiple problems guarding him. Alan started on him, but then I had to double down and Carl Tatum. We'd all double down and he's still scoring on us. And you know, he, he gets special mention for me because I, you know, he changed my shot off when I get to the basket and I had to pass the ball out. Cause you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident when I get into the basket on most people, but it, it, it would go awful dark with a, with a Michael Blunt out there. One of the other things I, I want to make sure that we touch upon um, before we before we wrap up is uh, is playing in Germany. Um, one of the things that uh, that Danny Palmer pointed out was that um, you and Steve Bucknell were teammates in was it Stuttgart? In Stuttgart. Yeah, and uh, that was the first English backcourt, well, English teammates uh, playing taking the two foreigner spots on teams in Europe. Yeah, the, you know, this, I don't think people people realise, you know, if we went back to 
how it is without the European market and you, you, you couldn't travel. All of the players that are in, all of the English players that are playing overseas, they would be in England, okay? And back then you were only allowed two foreigners. So that's somebody that isn't born in your country, okay? Pre-Bosman ruling, as it was called. And um, me and Steve played as two Americans. That was normally your American spots, okay? So that is an achievement in itself in playing on a foreign team um, in their first league and then taking the team that was essentially a, I would essentially using the Surrey Scorchers as a, as a barometer, a team that's near the bottom, okay? It's like taking a Surrey Scorchers team and winning the league and losing in the cup final. And I don't think people realise the, the calibre of players that was in that league, you know, that I think at that time, the top players in the league were making 175,000. That's a lot of money back then. 175,000, the top players in that league were making. And the players in the league, a guy called Mr. Jennings, he played for Utah Jazz. He was um, a little guard, but he's just so quick. He's <laughs> just lightning quick, we had to guard him. Then you've got Miris Kurtonitis, who played on that Russian national team. He could shoot the lights out from pretty much anywhere. John Johnson was playing for Bayreuth on another team. You know, hugely competitive league with a lot of money and very professionally run. And, you know, people like Christian Welp played and Uwe Blab. All these ex-NBA players that have played five, ten years in the, in, in the league were having a garden. And um, we figured out very early on, yes, there's me, I'm very, very quick, there's Bark. When we get on the break, if me and Steve are on the break, then we go at it. We take take it. If it's Steve and another German, no disrespect to the team, we wasn't guaranteeing we're going to get the bucket. So we played half-court basketball. And I think that's what really helped my IQ a lot more is because we couldn't outrun teams or outscore them because they had more scorers on their bench and everything else. We had essentially five, five really good players. Bench wasn't that good. So we had to slow it down. And if the game was 60 or 70, we win it because we made we felt that we made better closing decisions. The game was in the nineties, and we'd struggle to close that because they're scoring from everywhere. And um, it was a good. It, 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 I learned a lot in that league about finishing games and closing games and decision makings and taking correct shots at correct times. And you understand your role. I think in Britain, if you're a good player, you can go out and get forty if you want to. But in the system in Europe, you're not going to get 40. I mean, I average 16 and 10 or 16 and 9, which in this day would get me anywhere in, in any Super League, in, in the first league, if I was getting that now. But my role was to get the ball to everybody before I looked for my score. Bucknell averaged 19, our centre averaged 22 points a game. Then we had a couple of swingmen that was getting 15 and 14 a game. And one thing I say about the Germans... Once I penetrate and kick to them, they're hitting that. So that's quite, I was quite happy to kick all day long, all day long, because they're going to hit that. And, yeah, we won the league. Very, very tough. And there's a guy called Mike Jekyll, who's in the Hall of Fame. Played for Bamberg. He is one of the hardest persons I've ever had to guard in my life. He's Canadian. And um, he led that league in scoring maybe five, six, seven times. 
and between me and Buck, we had to shut him down. And it wasn't Americans, and he, you know, he was naturalized. He was married to a German girl, and he was nat and he was so tough to guard because he scored up for two dribbles. It, it, there's no loads of dribbles. If you're doing lots of dribbles, I'm quite happy to guard you. I'll stay in front of you. But when you can score for one dribble or no dribble, it creates a problem. So how, how was Danny Palmer coaching that team? Is that how the move came? Like, how did the actual move? To, like, how did they find? How did the club find out about you? Like, how did how did you sort of? Leave the UK. Back then, the British League was pretty pretty good. Back then, the British League was very very competitive. You know, your Steve Bontragers had just I think left the league at that time, but there was still a lot of good Americans in the league and stuff like that. And um, initially, they it was a, we had to go for a trial. So like anybody else, we had to go for a trial, and um, they liked us. They liked the toughness that we brought defensively. We, Defense is in our DNA. We've always liked to play Dean, Steve, and me. And if you if you said to me tomorrow, at your peak, who's your first pick in Europe? Mark. It's always my first pick because he plays D. Nobody plays. I, I he plays D like nobody else plays D. So that was one of the reasons they liked us. And I don't know if it's luck, but that week that I was shooting, I barely missed. I mean, I, I literally barely missed it. I'm thinking maybe it was destiny or whatever, but in the trial that I was there for four days, I went a couple of days without missing a shot in the scrimmages that we went up and down with. And I think that's why I got the job. And I was quick from there to there. I was very, very quick. And they liked that. And they liked my intensity. And I knew the off guard from the national program. He was... um. He played on the national team, but he, he, you know, Marcus Joachim is his name. So I knew him, and I knew the starting centre, just from playing international basketball. You get to know a lot of people. So it was the, the best experience in my pro life as a professional playing in the German Bundesliga. Was there any part of you after you uh, had made that transition that, that thought, oh, why didn't I try and come to Europe earlier? Because that was more towards the tail end of your career, right? 27? Yeah. Um, a German team had offered me before. But when you're happy, it's very difficult to leave when you're happy. You know, I was 24 maybe when they offered me. And um, I think it was Ulm. Ulm offered me to come to Europe to be players there, American or whatever it was. But I was making good money. I was making like 35 grand a year. Avia, I think Avia was my was the sponsor. They was giving me so much shoes, and <laughs> everybody in my family had shoes. <laughs> so I'm happy. So why would I go to a foreign country at that time when basketball in Britain was pretty good? Yeah, it was pretty good back then. And um, I should have went back because at the tail end of my career, I think maybe I was twenty nine thirty. Bayreuth, another German team came in and they offered me $75,000. I turned it down. Now you're saying, why would I turn that down? I was playing and I was making 50,000 pounds. Adidas was paying me 15 to 16,000 pounds. I was making 65,000 pounds in this country at that time. Adidas were giving you cash deal as well? Yeah. No, wow. No, you know, the, the Adidas deal came about after I'd come back from Germany, I was playing for London Towers. 
So you only did one season in Germany, right? Is yeah, that one correct? season. Okay. Yeah, one season. Then you came back and did two years in, uh, with the Towers, and that was was that was that it? Three years. You did three years with the Towers. Three years with the Towers, and I went to Manchester Giants for one year. Yeah. Okay. So the Towers thing, my first year back, the league was good, but not as good as the German league. So I drive the league, the, the, the lane, and six, eight guy goes to block me, and I just lay him. It's not a problem. In Germany... I tried to lay in it. Seven five, seven three, seven. You, you, you have to find a way. You're not, you're not getting to the basket in the German league. I remember Christian Velp. I'm taking a free throw, and the ball bobbled around, and he knocked it off. Just even just slapped it off the rim. I was like, wow, you know. And that that's the level of they played above the ring in in the German league. So my first year back. I found the league exceptionally easy right. to score. Because you had one year where you averaged like 24, yeah. 24, 25 a game, something like that. That was it. That was the year. That was the year. Yeah, because um, in the British League, a lot of people, you know, I, I, I tell people this and they don't, they don't actually believe me. It's not, if I went to be just a scorer, just a scorer, I probably would have averaged 26 a game every single night. But it doesn't guarantee that we're going to win. You know, if somebody's shooting, scoring 26 a night, I mean, James Harden is doing a very good job of showing you that right now. But back then, with the physicality of the way the game was, I could probably average 26. And I didn't go out to score, I go out to win. That was my whole ethos. So, you know, my philosophy was that when I first came back from Germany, was that the top six games are going to be tough. They're going to be very, very tough. The bottom six, not going to be so tough. So, if you if you can get stats from back then, we played the Hemels and the lower teams in the league. I might only have 12, 14, because I'm distributing the wealth a little bit more and the people that need to shoot a little bit more to get their confidence up. I, I, I distribute the wealth. But if it got close, then I'd shoot and score. Or I'd, you know, most of my games were against Kingston, Worthing, Thames Valley. I had big numbers against those teams because I need to. You know, we wasn't a very big team. We had no Americans the first year, none. With the Towers? Yeah, with the Towers, we had no Americans. This is why, when everybody says to me, I'm American, I don't see Americans or Europeans, I just see basketball players, as far as I'm concerned. And that team was one of the best teams I played on. Andrew Bailey, the two Scanterbury brothers, Solomon Ayinlin was on that team one year, Joe White was on it the first year. And we were competitive. We finished third in the BBL with no Americans that first year. Uh, me and Pete, Pete Scanlon, we were voted on the All-Star team, you know. So that's a testament to Mark Dunning and that he really he really worked that team. And, you know, I don't know what it was about that team. He'd diagram a play. And even if I thought it wasn't going to work, I'd still run it and it always worked. <laughs> <laughs> he was very good at diagramming last-second plays or last-minute plays. And... I think Adidas came about when we played Kingston. Thank you, Kingston. We beat them at home. Um, I shot from the halfway line, it went in. And the head of marketing for Adidas was there. And he came up to me and he said, um, you're the kind of guy that we're looking for to promote basketball. And they sponsored me from there on in for the next three, four years. Wow, did they have deals with other players or was it just you? Just me. At that 15 time, fifteen grand a year, you yeah, know, yeah, cash and product, I would assume as well. Well, he said to me the first year, he found me in March of that year, and he, I went up to Adidas. He said, "Come and see me on Monday. 
gives me his card at the end of the game. Come come and see me on Monday. So I, I went up to Manchester and he said, I'm at the end of my budget year. Okay. So what I'm going to give you, we can renegotiate in September. What I'm going to give you right now is five grand for the rest of the season. And I'm going to give you four grand at what we pay for the product. So they buy stuff at two pounds, three pounds. And he said, I'm going to give you four grand worth of product. I couldn't finish that budget, even wow. if I tried. Yeah. And that's what he gave me my first year. And then I renegotiated the following year and I got 15 grand the next year. Were you put were you putting uh, sort of promotional campaigns, adverts and stuff like that? Or I did lots of TV programs, Live and Kicking with Ant and Deck when they put Live and Kicking. And then we did Street Ball. I was the face of Street Ball. Street Ball Bar. We had five events in up and down the country. And I What was Street Ball? Street Ball was three on three. Oh, okay. The outdoor three and three events. Um, run by who? Adidas. Oh, it was run by Adidas, okay. And they put in about half a million at really? each. Really? Half a million at each. Of, they spent so much money. And we, we'd attract 40,000 people, 40,000 kids. And they'd invite NBA players to be the face at London and stuff like that. Yeah. And so I would go around the country promoting that for them in the summer. I gave up my England job at that stage because I was 27, playing for England that summer. Adidas promised me, look, Joel, um, you come and work for us in the summer and we'll pay we'll pay all your expenses. We'll pay you 250 quid, 300 quid a day. <laughs> so I had a choice. Yeah. Play for England in the summer. Oh, what was I making? £25 a day. £25 a day. Or I can play work for Adidas. Yeah. Make 250 for every promotion that I did. I said, we've got about 30 promotions that we want you to do in the summer. And I did it. So... And then expenses, all expenses paid, everything was paid for a hotel, four or five star hotel. And Prince Nazim, people like that, I was hanging out with them and the footballers. Yeah. You know, I met lots of footballers at that time. And, you know, some of them were my friends from before. Uh, Paul Lintz was a good mate of mine. I like Paul Lintz, <laughs> get very well with Paul Lintz yeah. and stuff like that. Interesting. So John Barnes, people like, yeah, dad, you know, so we, we cross reference a lot when I was at Adidas. A lot of stuff was cross referenced. Do you, uh, <coughs> one of the conversations we've been having with some of the players that come in here is, is talking about kind of making sure that they're set for the future and sort of looking ahead to the next step after basketball and stuff. You know, at that point, obviously you're not earning millions and millions and millions, so you yeah. never have to work again, but clearly you're earning some decent money that, that can make you financially stable. Were you thinking about the next step um, at that point and were you able to sort of make investments and ensure that, you know, when you were making the progression into sort of retirement that you had like a little bit of a nest egg or some sort of security so you're not just, you know, broke and then looking for your next job? No, for me, for me, uh, at 23, I was able to buy my house. Oh, I nice. So I was able to buy my house, mortgage, but I bought it at that stage and I still still got it to this day. And um, yeah, like you said, the, the sums of money that there are now you can't compare. Yeah. You know, when I think at my old club, I, I, I go back there now and again to speak to people, and I still have friends in Germany. When you when you think that their starting lineup at Stuttgart are all making 500,000 a year, <laughs> and I think me and Buck were making 65, 70,000, which is still decent money back then. But you compare that to now, you can see how big basketball has got in Europe, yeah. you know. Hopefully, we get that way for the kids in Britain, in England. Hope you, that is the hope that, you, that our league. I don't. I don't think it'll ever get that big. But you know, if if people are making one hundred fifty thousand pounds a year here, they probably won't leave. They probably won't leave. And I, that was part of the reason why I never left was because I was making decent money in England. And 
then I'd, I'd lived overseas a little bit and it can be a lonely environment. It can be. And that's what a lot of players come back and say is that it's a very lonely existence. You know, your family is not around you and your friends are not around you. So I think it takes a very strong-willed person to be able to play overseas for 10 years. <laughs> you, you briefly mentioned it at the start, um, but talking about sort of retirement what age were you when you actually hung them up and kind of what went into that decision because obviously you could have still had a few more years I would have guessed yeah. I mean I I retired pretty young I would say 32 31 32 I retired injuries injuries you know you you love this game and you give your all to the game and for me it, at the time a couple of years before I dislocated my shoulder and it had just got better but I also had tennis elbow. Now, if, any, if, you, if those of you that have had tennis elbow, it's a very painful thing. And if it's on your shooting arm, when you lock out, you feel that constant pain. And I had dislocated my knee and shoulder at the same time in a, a game, in a game for um, Kingston. And the knee had got better, but it was a slow process. The knee, the dislocation was a slow process. And then I was having problems with a lot of tendonitis in my Achilles tendon. So all of those factors at the same time made me hang up the boots because I would have never hanged up my boots for just because I'm, I think I'm too old. I wasn't too old. It, the injuries were taking its toll on my body and um, I made a decision to kind of hang up at 32. Um, two years later, my body was back to normal. I was back to normal, but I looked at the road that I had to climb and how long I would be still playing at the top. Because I remember what I said to you at the beginning, I'm, I'm all in. If yeah. I'm not all in, then I, I can't do it. And I, at 32, 34, I'm thinking maybe two more years, I'd have maybe two more good years, and then I might have to retire again. And I just didn't want to train to get back to that level because I knew how long it was. At that stage, your body's telling you, and the injuries were fine then, but I'd have to do it six months of, really really hard training and the elasticity of the muscles isn't the same when you come back just isn't did you find it difficult um going from you know basketball is your life you're practicing every day you're having games every week to then all of a sudden just stopping um yeah it, that, that 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 was a tough ask because i'm um anybody that remembers me playing i'm i love the game but i'm very intense i'm intense all the time Maybe not always in the best, but I'm always intense. And I'm, nobody can tell you that I didn't play hard because I always played hard. And um, trying to wean myself off of that intense intensity that I can. So the first three years after I stopped playing, to actually go and play pickup basketball, I couldn't do it. Because I'm thinking about the point game. <laughs> thinking about winning. Some players can just go and relax and play on the court. For me, nah. I'm about to win. So when we play, even if I'm playing with girls, it's a struggle for me to just accept that that person's going to let somebody go back door or they're going to miss a wide open layup. All of that was a struggle for me. So rather than put myself into that position, I stayed off the court for the first three years. I just stayed off the court and then I coached girls for a little while and I slowly got myself back into British basketball. But the first three years was tough because... People say, let's go and play, but I said, I, I can't play unless you're going to play hard. If you're just going to go for a run. Or, you, I hear people say, let's go and have a sweat. Well, what's that? I have to go and kill. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why 
I think for me, it was very tough at times watching other players. And for me, watching people play a sport and don't give their all. Like some of the kids today, I watched them and like, oh, I didn't really try that hard. Why not? Why are you not giving your all every time that you step on the floor? And I said to them, you never know who's in the stands. You never know who's looking at you. You never know who might want to give you an opportunity to play and you're not giving your best. We're in a world league now. So the internet has opened it up as a world league. You decide that we're playing a lesser team and you don't perform. That college that you might be thinking is looking at you, they're not going to look at you because they've seen that tape of you walking back on defense. One of my players that I've sent to Ostend, and I sent him and they love him and he's still there. And they, the coach had a go at him because he watched his ABL games. And he says, you never run back on defense. Why is it that you, you, you run out of steam after 10 minutes and you're just walking around on the court? And all the things that he didn't do, he's highlighted it to him through the ABL and the things that he doesn't do. So as I said, you never know who's watching <laughs> the leagues that you're playing in. So for any kid out there, give your best every single day. 100%. I think that is a perfect place to finish. Uh, Joel, thank you so much for, for coming around today and uh, doing this. It was uh, super insightful and really interesting. I really enjoyed it. No, thank you, Sam. Thank you. I enjoyed it. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.